Thank you for joining us for the next hour or two in this episode of Inside Myanmar podcast. In an age of nearly limitless content, we appreciate that you're choosing to take valuable time out of your day to learn more about what is happening in Myanmar. It's vital for this story to be heard by people around the world, and that starts right now with you. this episode of Inside Myanmar podcast, we're joined by Elliot Prasse Freeman, and we're going to be specifically discussing his book, which came out of many years of research and was just recently published. The book name is Rights Refused, Grassroots Activism and State Violence in Myanmar. Uh, Elliot, this is a long time coming. I'm really excited to get into this book. It's very full. There's a lot there. We'll see how much we can pack in. And thanks so much for taking the time to talk about your work. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Uh, so let's get into the book title itself, Rights Refused. I think that uh, even the title of this is indicating somewhere of where you're going with your scholarship and what you're trying to express. Tell us what Rights Refused means. Yeah, so it's a kind of play on words a little bit um, in the sense that, as we know, anyone who studied Myanmar for the past you know, 60 years kind of understands that under a military government, rights in a sort of substantive sense, meaning the entitlements or the material things that could be given to people that we tend to call rights have been refused or denied to the people of, of Myanmar. And, but what I have found over the last uh, decade or so working on this book is that rights have a, are more complex in, in Myanmar in the sense that they tend to presuppose a contractual relationship, a stable relationship between uh, a governed population and the you know, apparatus of power that's supposed to be guaranteeing those rights. And that's something that 
their reality just doesn't reflect. And so when people do talk about rights in, in Myanmar, many um, Myanmar people, or at least this is what I found in my, my field work, look a little bit askance at that, that claim. Um, so if someone says, you know, you have the right to not have this happen to you, people might say, is that, is that really true? Um, they might look at their own material realities and say, I don't really think I have, have this right. And so the rights refused that I talk about in this book aren't just the fact that these rights are denied to people, but the paradigm in which we assume that rights is uh, liberatory and can actually help people uh, gain the things that they want and the dignity that they that they deserve, are, are, they might also re refuse those paradigms. So it's kind of a operating in two valences. One of the reasons why um, rights is so interesting in, in Myanmar is that the Burmese term, that is often translated as rights, can also be translated as opportunities. And I don't think this is an accident of language in which in certain contexts it means rights and it's quite clear to everyone. In other contexts, it means opportunities. So for instance, lu means human rights, but would mean opportunist, someone who takes advantage of a situation. So the root definitely points in two different directions. Mm. And over the term of the research, I kind of found that uh, a concept that we tend to split and keep separate in um, other contexts. So maybe the one that I'm most familiar with as an American, in which opportunity is very different than a right, right. Um, haven't really been split in the same sense in in Myanmar, both in terms of the in terms of the, the reality that people live. And I think language tends to, to reflect that. So if someone doesn't have the opportunity to uh, realize uh, something, then they don't really have the right to. And so I spent a lot of time tracking how people talked about this in their daily lives and how um, activists had to maneuver a situation in which they couldn't rely on rights. They couldn't fall back on rights paradigms to guarantee or secure their incursions into um, the public realm against the, the military state. And so they had to improvise other methods that were effective for them. Yes, and this is what we'll be getting into in this talk. And I just want to emphasize how important it is that we're looking at, and you specifically are bringing this to the readers, or in this case, listeners' attention, of not importing a, an understanding of from another country of how we've come to see it, and 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 bringing that there, but trying to integrate where um, local paradigms and understandings uh, occur. I think this is something that has has. All, happened all too often in the case of Myanmar. There's an anecdote that I've told several times before that's relevant here as well, where um, sometime probably 2012 or so, the year is important in the anecdote, 2011, I think it was, uh, there was a, um, a, a, a Western trainer who came in to give a workshop and part of the the the, the the talk and kind of what it hinged on was the ubiquity of Coca-Cola. And the whole talk hinged on just Coca-Cola being this ubiquitous thing that was available everywhere. And that the, the, the greater metaphor they were making, which I won't go into, it was pretty silly anyway, but it hinged on this understanding that Coke was this thing you could buy anywhere. But at that time in Myanmar, Coke was a luxury product. There was no Coca-Cola bottling plants. It was something you would have kind of at upscale places because it was imported from Thailand. And so it was this 
like if you had a if you went somewhere that had a Coke, it was kind of a sign that it was, you know, a, a foreign product or something that was looked on in uh, a bit more elite, a bit more expensive. And so it, and, and I, there were so many incidences like this I encountered in my own life in Myanmar. But that was a moment I always glommed onto because it it uh, it really seemed to symbolize and highlight a a foreign so-called expert coming in with. Uh, with an understanding of how things were in their country and maybe how they were in the world and referencing an analogy without ever thinking to check if that was true there and everything just falling flat because Coca-Cola <laughs> in 2011 was not ubiquitous. So it's so important to know these local things and work within them rather than bringing your own paradigms and frames into it. Yeah, that's a really great example. I can think about, um, you know, a lot of the, uh, I can think of similar situations that I've encountered in, in Myanmar as well. Um, and I think the challenge when you're doing um, research on a place that can seem quite quite different and it is quite different uh, is to figure out you know the the ways in which a place like Myanmar is is different and take that local difference seriously, but also uh, keep in mind the sort of um, you know ways that it's also connected to the to the broader right. world. And so the right. book tries to do that as well. Yeah. Yeah. And so getting into that book, I, I understand from your preface that your research began uh, long before the coup during the democratic transition period. And then in the midst of your research and your writing, the, the coup takes place. And so the the um, the way that one is confronting military oppression suddenly becomes much more acute uh, in, in this moment. And so how did that change the nature of your study and understanding to have done this research and have it, I, I want to say, interrupted by the military coup. I don't know if interrupted is the right word. It could could mm -hmm. be enhanced and could bring out other things. But how did that change the way that you were digging into this? Yeah, thank you for that question. It actually allows me to go back even, even further to the sort of origin of the book. Um, in a sense, came back in 2003 and 2004 when I was just an undergraduate. but And then I had finished my university and I moved to Myanmar at that point. So I lived in Myanmar in 2004 and five for about a year, a little bit more than a year. And so I got a sort of taste of what Myanmar was like before the transition. And then I did this, I finished, I, um, I did a PhD work then a whole decade later in which I started to study some of the things that I had seen in, in Myanmar a little bit more closely. And I think a lot of it emerged from the fact that Myanmar wasn't very well studied during the military years. And so there tended to be some tropes and some descriptions of, of reality that didn't match up to what I had um, experienced when I lived there. And so part of the reason for doing the PhD was just like kind of being and this is kind of how I describe the the current my current profession in general is kind of like being a nerdy detective. Like something doesn't seem that you read about Myanmar doesn't seem to match up with the reality that I had experienced uh, living in, in there in Yangon for for a year. And so I was trying to figure out. Or I was very compelled to try to figure out like what you know what explained the what really explained Myanmar. And so I was able to do this research during the the so called transition period, which for all of its faults, did give um, researchers like myself a lot more freedom to move around the country and to explore things. Um, and I was lucky enough, and so much of anthropological research, anyone who's honest will tell you, is just luck. Uh, I was working with a legal aid organization that actually collapsed due to some you know, internal problems that it had. And so 
at this at this point, November, I think 2014, uh, I was all dressed up with nowhere to go, so to speak. You know, I had this field work time, but I didn't have a great project at this point. And I managed to fall in with uh, a NGO pal of mine who was doing land grab research in Mandalay and Sagain area. And I tagged along and met um, the group of activists and at that point, they had just been kind of hired as handlers because they knew these communities who were having their lands grabbed. And they were kind enough and generous enough to allow me to kind of tag along with them for what became the next few years. Not not all at once, but you know, a sustained period of time for, for eight months, nine months with them. And then um, a longer term engagement with this group that continues to this day that then led up to the, the coup, which of course... I think most people speaking honestly will say that it was a, it took them by, took us by, by surprise. And then the coup for all of its horror uh, produced this pretty amazing response, uh, as we know on the, on the ground in the form of the uprising or the, you know, the Ayeda bone, however you want to describe it. And I started to notice so many of the things that um, I had been studying during that period of 2014 to, you know, to 2021, basically, uh, from the small to the large. And what I mean by that is like little things like the three-fingered salute I had observed in, in 2014 in a, or 2015 in a courtroom in, in Dagon uh, Township in Yangon. And I started to see this everywhere. I had been mm-hmm. studying these chains uh, Daipue, which were these cursing rituals that uh, very um, – cleverly use the sort of esoteric realm to kind of circumvent uh, kind of secular realm domination to tell uh, people who are stealing land, you know, you can, you can steal the land all you want, but there's a, a, a longer term cosmological karmic consequence coming your way if you're not careful. And then during the coup, I, I was observing, you know, dozens of these really creative cursing rituals pop up, you know, even to the point that at the start of the coup, one of the few people who was arrested were not those protesters on the streets in the first couple of days, you know, cursing, sorry, cursing at men online, but someone who led the people's uh, cursing uh, you know, ritual, who was a, a Baden Seya in Okalapa was, was arrested. So it kind of showed the resonance for the people who were being cursed, in this case, mm-hmm. the, the military junta. So the coup and the uprising against the coup um, was made legible by the, the research, or I tried to make it legible but through the research that I had done. And the coup itself and the uprising helped throw into relief and, and make a little bit more clear um, some of the things that I had studied. So the, the book is because the coup is such an important, you know, world historical event and, and a, certain, a huge one for, for Myanmar. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to make sure that my book had focused in granular and specific ethnographic terms on much of the work that I'm sorry, much of the action and the, much of the things that had been done during this transition period mm. didn't just become, you know, old <laughs> history. Right. I wanted to make sure that the, the coup, which is in the uprising against it, which are still going going on, are kind of uh, in conversation with the um, what had gone on during the so-called transition period. And luckily, because the people who I had worked with were also in the streets and remain active in the the underground 
um, resistance against the coup provided a sort of bridge between the two eras and allowed mm. me to write a book that at least speaks to both. Right. Um, yeah, there's so much in that answer. I can only pick one direction to go at a time. I'm juggling between <laughs> all the different things you threw there. But the thing yeah. I, I want to touch upon of what you said is that we, um, so we have these touchstone moments in Myanmar that everyone pays attention to 1988, 2007, 2021, just to name the last three. And I mean, even the years um, stand out with a certain, you just say those years and anyone related to Myanmar in Myanmar knows exactly what you're talking about. And especially many outside observers try to understand Myanmar through these pivotal events and, and highlight them. But what stands out is your work. And I'm also thinking of Delphine Schrank, who wrote The Rebel of Rangoon. She was also uh, on us with a podcast that um, I, I found, even though uh, the... Um, the direction that you two go are, are, are very, are quite different in terms of your intentions. There's something very similar that I don't know if I've seen in many other books that are talking not about those touchstone moments, but about this or about the, the big actors, but about the spaces in between and the smaller people on the ground that are giving shape to those bigger events in between them. And also, uh, supporting uh, those those bigger names that we know. And so I'm wondering if you also find this tendency to understand the country, attempt to understand the country through these big events. And when so much attention is being paid that way, what gets missed when further attention is not being paid to those moments when it appears that nothing is happening above board, yet actually so much is continuing to happen below the surface, which actually explain those big events when you miss them? Absolutely. And I love that you brought up Delphine's book because um, I really feel like it's one of those books that got missed a little bit. And I try to plug it whenever I can, because I, I think I read it back in 2015 or 16. I was really blown away by the sort of the detail and the nuance mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. that she brings to things and the sort of, you know, the, like just take the this saffron revolution like so many people repeat even like many scholars repeat a lot of stuff about the the revolution um that is just simply factually wrong about mm -hmm. you know they limit it to a discussion of the monks and miss the fact that the 88 gs was in the streets you know walking to work because people couldn't take the buses anymore and before that this group called the myanmar development um uh, committee led by tinjo and Goto and some of the other people who I mentioned in, in the book had been holding protests before. So there's this long history that led up to this suppose this like conflagration that emerged. And so the viewing from the outside, it seems like this was just a, you know, pent up uh, aggression, not mm -hmm. aggression, pent up frustration, sorry, that um, that popped off at this particular time and then receded back into into stasis and complacency of, of living under uh, military rule. Um, but when you look at it from a sustained uh, on the ground perspective, especially from the perspective of grassroots organizers who um, are spending a, a lot of time in their communities rather than, quote unquote, in the streets, um, then you, as you, I said so eloquently, and I <laughs> almost don't have that much to add, you start to see the, the sort of um, the ways that these broader conflagrations, these moments that we talk about from 88 to 2007 to 2021 mm -hmm. um, can become a little bit more legible. I mean, I think one of the things that 
has to come through in, in the book uh, is just how much of the life of an activist and a life of a, a normal person isn't about these contests with the, the state. Mm, exactly. There's so much that is preparing for those, deciding when uh, a particular mm-hmm. conflict, a particular protest is just, this is not our fight. This is not our time to go back right. to prison, as I, I heard from them a lot. And there was a lot of picking and choosing and, and doing the organizing work that um, that allows people to get from, from one day to the other. Then also builds the sort of support and respect that then when things do become, come to a head, uh, people will, the people who are, have been wronged, whether they've had their land stolen or whether they are struggling to survive, or whether they're trying to organize a, a, a industrial zone protest, factory protest, then the, these activists um, aren't just the ones that had swooped in from above, but they've been working with them for a long time. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that when, as, as I'm hearing you talk, it's it's making me think or remember uh, insights I had before with this, that when you just pay attention to those touchstone events, you're, you're kind of minimizing and demeaning all the work that went into, you know, this wasn't accidental. This, this was, this was something that was not being paid attention to, especially by the West, but both yours and Delphine's book in very different ways are describing those, um, the, the actors who dedicate their lives in ways that are maybe not as sexy or not as, um, don't, don't stand out in the same way, but that are in every way leaning to something that is not accidental, that it, that is maybe not predicted in the shape of when or how or what shape, but is is certainly with a very con- a very intentional mind state to what is it working and what can work in its place and what moments can bring about that change. Absolutely. And so another thing that you reference in your book, there's a number of phrases and words and terms to unpack. The first one I want to bring is you have this phrase, quote, left to die, made to live, made to die, left to live, uh, end quote. But I wonder if you can unpack what this phrase means and where it came from and how it applies and is relevant to the to the to the, the underground that you're studying in Myanmar. Absolutely. Yeah, this is getting into the, the hurly-burly of the theory a little bit, and I hope it the book doesn't drown in it in that sense, but tr- uses enough ethnography to illustrate some of these concepts. So the let to die, made to live is actually comes from Michel Foucault's um, observations about changes in the way that power operated in the so-called modern period. So to kind of gloss this, the earlier era under quote-unquote sovereign uh, despotism or, or, or power was a situation where the king made people die uh, when they threatened him, but for the most part, let them alone to live. Um, and so he starts this book, Discipline and Punish, with a, a grisly scene of, a, of an execution uh, in which someone had, had tried to kill a regicide that was being uh, executed. And so had this, he had this kind of interesting inversion of this kind of classic paradigm of the way we think power operates and says that what actually is being happened is that we're the, under what he called you know, biopower ultimately, is that people are kind of let alone to die in certain situations and then made to live in the way that they're regulated, the way that they're enrolled into different projects, a way that they're, you know, they're governed or trained and habituated into seeing themselves as certain kind of uh, subjects, because as those subjects will 
uh, live, they will um, allow the the state and the broader apparatus to to prosper. So he observed that this was a sort of interesting inversion in the way power worked in in the world, or particularly the Western European world that he was studying. Now, what the reason why this is relevant for for my work in Myanmar actually is multiple fold, I think, and it's a kind of a, a question of where where to start sometimes. So I'm going to start with the going back to the rights point in the sense that when you're the rights paradigm kind of assumes a, an individual autonomous actor who um, stands in a relationship to the, the state as a contractual rights bearing subject who has one vote and who grants the people who are or institutions that are ruling him, uh, that, that the right to rule through, um, you know, the le- legitimacy of that particular relationship. Now, anyone who's studied Myanmar knows that that is not really a, a good way to describe how things operate in, in Burma, you know, just from the fact that we don't, for a long time, didn't even have uh, elections, but just the fact that you know, usually people aren't seen uh, not taken as the sort of foundations for um, for the way governance should operate, unfortunately, and that's why I think a lot of activists will talk about power power to the people uh, as a way of reinstalling uh, something that hasn't existed. So, for we need to get outside of the sort of uh, liberal paradigm that assumes a, a rights bearing subject, and so Foucault provides this alternative uh, paradigm in which people are. Um, mobilize and or are regulated not as individuals um, per se, but as part of these population groups uh, who are then uh, let to die or, or made to live in the classic sense. And so there's a theorist called Partha Chatterjee, who is an anthropologist at Columbia, who studies the so-called post-colonial wo- world. And he kind of argues that because of the way that the um, colonial world took individuals, uh, or it's governed not as uh, individuals to be regulated through the paradigm of civil society and one person, one vote that I just described, but rather as those sort of masses, those population groups to be regulated. In a sense, all politics in the post-colonial world are to a certain extent uh, fall under this biopolitical paradigm in which people mobilize as population groups. Now, I thought found that to be very insightful for a place like Myanmar, and I um, started to think about the ways that this set of theoretical tools could apply to a place like like Burma. And I think um, what I what I found is that while one could describe the um, things in Myanmar as as by the sorry the regulatory uh, governance paradigm in Myanmar as biopolitical, that also somehow gets things wrong a little bit because it overstates the way that biopolitics tends to want to make live. And that goes back to that expression that you mentioned earlier, the let to die, made to live. And so I was really quite fascinated by this theoretical conundrum, which is that how can you have a sort of biopolitical paradigm in which masses are taken as the objects of, of governance rather than you know, rights-bearing liberal individuals. But they're not promoted in, in the sense that their lives are not protected. They're, uh, they're not made to, made to live in a way that it seems like 
is a concern of, <clears throat> excuse me, of the state. And so I then inverted this expression one more time. Instead of let to die, made to live, I, I kind of saw something in, in Myanmar as more like let to die, made to die. And what I mean by that, without sounding too macabre, is that um, population groups in Myanmar are either made to die in the sense of, um, you know, perhaps protesting masses, uh, the Rohingya and other um, ethnic minorities who have been the object of direct state violence over the last 60, 70 years, um, are then also exist in the same context with population groups of what we might call, you know, kind of unmarked uh, average Bama populations who are more let to die, who are just kind of um, ignored and who mm -hmm. are not made an, an object of governance in an active way. And the reason why I wanted to focus on that is going back to, you know, my origin story in a sense where I felt like things that were written about Burma weren't really accurately describing the reality that I saw mm -hmm. is that <clears throat> there's often an assumption that Myanmar state is totalitarian, mm -hmm. that it, uh, and that it operates in a, this insidious way where it seeps into every, um, you know, aspect of people's lives. And when I lived in Myanmar and spent a lot of time talking with Burmese people, I just didn't see that as a reality. Like mm -hmm. The state was really horrible and did terrible mm -hmm. things, but often it was a form of, of neglect as much as it was yeah. an active form of meddling. And of course, you don't want to get caught up in, in the state because it, you know, to kind of paraphrase a, a Burmese expression, you don't want to make small problems big problems. Mm -hmm. um, at the same time, I think even the the way that some scholars describe um, the relationship between the Myanmar state and its subject populations through the paradigm of evasion maybe uh, misdescribes things a bit. And I'm not like dunking on people who use evasion. I've used it too. But I started to think about evasion. And evasion kind of describes, it only really works. You can only evade something which is trying to capture yeah, you, which is right. trying to enroll you, which is trying to regulate you, which is trying to surveil you. And I, you know, spending time in the, the what I call, well, not what I call, but what is it's called the Sinje Bone, the sort of uh, peri-urban areas of, of Yangon. And I, I use that term because the activists I work with spent time in Miao Okalapa, but also down to Gon and Shui mm -hmm. and Langtaya. So it was kind of a movable feast across the, these mm. peri-urban peri areas. And one of the problems was not a state that was suffocating uh, people, but a state that was just completely absent. Mm -hmm. And so you have this, uh, these, you know, not so much two populations of those who are let to die and made to die because different individuals can move between them, unfortunately, with, uh, um, you know, with rapid uh, speed sometimes, but rather sort of different paradigms of rule that there are different, uh, that this is a sort of the logic in which some people become this direct object of violence and other people become a sort of object of what we could call like structural violence, violence mm -hmm. of, of neglect. And, and one of the challenges of the activists was to take um, this reality and kind of politicize it, take this um, structural violence that one of the tricky insidious parts of structural violence is the way that it convinces people that it is normal um, and maybe not quite so normal that they mm -hmm. think that it is just, but they think that it is not something that can be intervened against. And so a lot of what the activists were doing was taking a look at normal material 
conditions and trying to re-signify them, right? To say, this is not just something that is banal, that is like that defines daily life and must, but it's something that could be done differently. And here's how we could we might imagine that. Mm, right. That's really insightful. And you do describe this kind of <clears throat> alternating view between the state having like either this ghostly quality of neglect or this aggressive overbearing nature of, of, of overt violence. And it's really a distinction between complete absence and assertive presence and noting that how the regime only recognizes people when it harms them. I mean, that's quite a tragic statement to understand. And I think perhaps very hard to make sense for those who are listening to this from stable societies to even kind of contemplate what that means to live in a society like that. And that brings up another term that uh, I I think it segues naturally into another term you present in the book. You've already referenced the term biopolitics. I think first maybe unpack biopolitics for those uh, listeners who aren't familiar, but then you add an adjective onto that uh, blunt biopolitics. And so in this this nature of characterizing what this regime is, what it isn't, what it means to live under it, what it means to resist against it, what what is the relevance of this blunt pi- this this blunt biopolitics and what does that mean in terms of how it manages life and death, how it deploys violence, how it uses knowledge? Thanks. Yeah, that's a a really good question. And thank you for reading so so carefully that you're able to chaperone this conversation in such a <laughs> such a sophisticated way, uh, probably more than I deserve, especially <laughs> when I come up with terms like blunt biopolitics that still make me cringe a little bit. <laughs> um, but what I mean by by blunt biopolitics is that um, so I saw the way that you know if we're operating outside of this rights-based paradigm, uh, a biopolitical paradigm in which I think it, it's very basic um, sense uh, describes the way that population groups rather than individuals are are regulated. But then in the Foucauldian sense, the things that he was observing in Western Europe, he observed um, different kind of par- kind of like uh, axiomatic um, definitions or, or sorry elements of what a biopolitics would look look at. And the kind of key is that. I think two main keys is that the population groups that are taken as the object of governance are also protected and promoted. And so life itself becomes this object to uh, enhance so that the broader polity can flourish. And so um, he observed, this is Foucault, observed things like uh, censuses and uh, public health administrations and productivity um, uh, projects that then take an average sort of uh, regulated subject as part of these populations and tries to enhance them. So things that hadn't been objects of knowledge before, the ratio of births and deaths, uh, the sort of um, how much people were could be improved, these became objects of, of governance itself. Now, blunt biopolitics, even though I think, and I people can definitely argue against this. I, I argue that, you know, in Myanmar, we're operating under a, a sort of biopolitical paradigm. Um, there are some key deviations from the way that biopolitics operates. First, <laughs> quite um, simply, the population groups aren't actively protected, actively promoted in the same way that um, the sort of paradigmatic model of biopolitics would would suggest. So the population groups don't become um, uh, sort of recipients of 
active interventions on the part of the broader um, state apparatus that would try to promote them. Um, and one of the re reasons, or sorry, so something that operates kind of like dovetails with this is that in part because the populations aren't actively promoted, <clears throat> they aren't really known. And I think one of the things that I'm trying to intervene against is a use of the biopolitical um, and Foucauldian sort of governmentality um, argument that occurs in many other parts of the post-colony that I think has been a little bit blithely transposed to the, the Myanmar context. And what I mean by that is that in, uh, especially in the historiography and analysis of of India uh, under the British, you saw these really ambitious projects of knowing the local population so as to better regulate them through things like um, ethnological surveys and uh, censuses and um, ways of taking, uh, you know, old laws and trying to make them real as the original Orientalists were doing there. And because Myanmar was um, a part of of British India until 1937, uh, people kind of assume, well, same colonial project, same uh, outcome. And hence, you hear a lot about how the census in Burma reified ethnicity and turned it into these, um, you know, uh, ossified categories that people cannot um, no longer maneuver within and it becomes their destiny. But doing field work and, and watch, like, look, you know, paying attention to the way the state operates, it seemed like that form of knowledge power was was more or less absent in in Burma. And and so to just give some pretty basic examples, like one of the key features of statecraft is knowing your population so you can regulate them. But Myanmar is a country that doesn't have a biometric ID system. Um, it has these map on tin, these ID cards that it insists people carry, but the census of 2014 um, showed that they, most people, not most, but many people don't actually even have these things. So it's, um, so people aren't very really well regulated. They don't even have last names, of course, quite famously, which, you know, James Scott and others have shown as a, not an accident of history, but rather a technology of governance. So uh, you can, you know, lineages can be traced and individuals can be tracked down by the state when, when needed. Um, and even that census that I just mentioned, the 2014 one, was the first one that had been held since 1983, uh, which in turn wasn't a very complete one. And so there was another one in 1973, and there wasn't one before that, you know, for a while. So that, you know, the the way that um, Myanmar is known is very incomplete. And so as a result, this throws into relief how we can think of the state. And it also has consequences for how people imagine their own lives. So um, they are, because the, the state doesn't exhaust um, this realm of, of regulation, you have people uh, able to reimagine even the categories through which they are governed. And so like I, I think one of the more important examples is that in a country where um, scholars often talk about the importance of lumyo, uh, the Burmese term for, you could say, race or ethnicity, um, even has been kind of remade at, on, on the ground, which you wouldn't think is possible if the state was uh, robust 
proactive, you know, insisting on certain categories and making them real in people's lives. So as an example, if you ask someone about Lumiole, what Lumio are you? Um, you're, depending on who you are asking and depending on how the, the person in turn interprets your, your question, you can get really different answers. Um, and one of the answers that I found most interesting is, you know, how often people returned, uh, and I found this in the literature too, so it wasn't just me, um, answers about religion to a question that was putatively about um, race or ethnicity. So when I asked Balumiole, people would say, you know, Hindu Lumio, Muslim Lumio, right. even Botabata Lumio. Mm -hmm. And the Botabata one, I think, is the most, uh, sorry, Buddhist Lumio, rather. I mm -hmm. think that one's probably the most interesting because for marginalized subjects like Hindus and Muslims in Myanmar, they don't often have uh, races that, that, um, are available in the you know famous 100 list of 135 yeah, right. and one of the tragedies is the way that you know in the last 60 years some of their lumios were actually you know st stripped from the list there's a article by mufti mianthain uh, where he shows that there were 144 lumio and many of mm -hmm. those lumios uh, disappeared and went to 135 mm -hmm. that we now know is the is the key number now what's interesting about Buddhist people saying I'm a Buddhist Lumio is that they have um, those, for the most part, they have those categories available to them, but the state hasn't insisted um, that they uh, identify with, with one and only one. As Benedict Anderson, the famous uh, historian of Southeast Asia, he said, you know, one of the things about the modern state and the census is that it made sure people no longer saw themselves as fractions you know, no, no mixed identities. He said that the key of the census wasn't so much that it created new identities, but it, it forced one, people to choose it, uh, between a world that had been really fluid beforehand. Now, I see a lot of that fluidity still on the ground. And if you look at people's map on tin, the, that card that I suggested earlier that, you know, a lot of people don't even have, you'll see, uh, especially for, um, Muslim people or people who seem like they come from South Asia uh, as uh, ascribed by phys physi the physiognomy that people, that immigration officials will see in them, you will see like a huge number of fractions. You'll see a, a Lumio with uh, written in, in hand, in, scrawled on there that says, you know, Muslim, Bengali, uh, mm -hmm. you know, Pakistan, you know, and then maybe like Kaman or, or, you know, something else. Um, and so as a result, you don't have this very uh, aggressive uh, regulatory apparatus that is um, taking an active role in people's lives. So to come back to that um, blunt biopolitical point, um, you the state is basically given way to um, the polity to help kind of like regulate itself. And I think a lot of... Um, important ethnographic work that is emerging in this period of, of the transition where people were actually able to go study how people live um, is showing all these really um, interesting improvisational go-to um, <clears throat> go-da as uh, Gerard McCarthy in his recent book uh, studies the way people are, are, are forced to kind of um, support themselves. And so I don't know if I would go so far as to call this um, a biopolitics because it doesn't, um, it's not quite that 
uh, all-encompassing and well-organized, but under a blunt biopolitical paradigm, the people are not like all left to their own devices. There are these interesting ways that people are supporting each other. But so one of the challenges becomes to try to make that more political. And a lot of the, uh, like the, bo the book is arguing that the way that people have to take care of their own sort of like biopolitical survival as these population groups can then become the sort of gateway drug, uh, if you will, into becoming more political. Almost everyone starts out in these um, civil society organizations from free funeral services to, um, you know, local education projects, um, then if we're lucky, they become uh, radicalized and politicized at some point, and they start to um, make these things, turn these things into uh, objects of politics and objects of mm. organization that say, well, this doesn't have to be this way. So finally, to, to sum up, um, blunt, not sum up, but to finalize blunt biopolitics, there's a sort of third paradigm, uh, sorry, third um arm or, or third aspect to it, which is that if you have a state that doesn't promote its populations, which doesn't really know them, it does. It also, this would imply that it's, it's just basically not there. And one of the things that you um, identified a couple of minutes ago is that this isn't quite the way to describe the state either, uh, that while I emphasize some of its absence, it also can be radically present in the sense of, mm -hmm. you know, committing genocide and a coup, some of the most sovereign um, acts imaginable. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to kind of think about the way that violence can become a, a sort of governance technique. Uh, and that emerges from a lot of the work that or research that I've been doing over the last five years since completing my dissertation and moving to Singapore. I've had a lot of more chance to work with the Rohingya community on that very tragic situation of the ethnic cleansing that occurred in 2017 and the long-term attempt to erase the, the population from northern Rakhine State. But one of the things that's really fascinating about this conflict, and I want to be very careful here, um, not to say that until the violence occurred, Rohingya didn't exist. But I would say that I've I stumbled, not stumbled upon, but found a remarkable number of people who weren't aware of the ethnonym Rohingya until they become, became an object of mass violence on the part of the state um, that was trying to eliminate the Rohingya. Mm -hmm. So there's this sort of brutal irony that the, mass, the very mass violence that was trying to eradicate the, the mass actually gave helped give the mass a new, a new consciousness uh, around it. And um, this is a sort of points to the way that violence itself can be productive of those same population groups that I was describing as paradigmatic of a blunt, uh, sorry, yeah, a biopolitical um, way of regulating a population. Mm, right. And other examples you give in the book of this kind of, for lack of a better word, hide and seek of, uh, of either, yeah. either neglect or <clears throat> overt violence is how in the early days of the coup, the SAC was sometimes displaying the bodies in their full glory and sometimes hiding and disposing of them in secret. And, and just in yeah. general times, also the, the fact that people uh, must find a way to access goods and services from the state or, or by their own means while preventing harm from the state in return, which is just insane. And, uh, and, and your talk just a minute ago about how um, moving from being involved in some aspect of civil society into and then having that as a gateway that goes into greater political life, that actually, it's really interesting because that echoes what uh, 
what came up in the convert in the previous podcast conversation with former U.S. Ambassador Scott Marcial, where at one point he was arguing, he was arguing in the podcast representing a view that he was. Uh, bringing to uh, to Washington in describing that some of the forms of of engagement and democracy and and um, and civil society and such they in Myanmar they they took on a life and a character that didn't necessarily fit international development models and so he was really mm-hmm. arguing in in American engagement to support certain kinds of of civic engagement and and civil society that did not um, fit uh, democratic models of what they were used to seeing, but he was arguing this is the the shape it has to take. And if I remember correctly, I think we might have been talking specifically about post Nargis, and you know Nargis mm-hmm. that was obviously a, a really important time. And and, that, and I I was there. I saw it literally happening in front of me as a trainer at the American Center. I I saw uh, students and uh, or participants in the courses that I was leading um, responding to that emergency that was happening in their civil society with with no other intention. Intentionality than simply how do we get medicine or rice or or whatever else yeah. has to be done, and then from there that growing to greater uh, agency and confidence and networking and, and other things, and um, and so but it's just interesting hearing you say that from a more academic side, which parallels so much of what Scott Marcial was describing from a diplomatic side, and and just an emphasis in having this be on the radar. I think that you could also harken back to the Coca Cola example that you know yes you need to have international models that can be applied and that are useful and that are relevant, but then you also need to know damn well that there's no Coca-Cola bottling plant in Myanmar. <laughs> and this is not, this might, Coca-Cola might be ubiquitous and might be a sign of capitalism in, you know, 98% of the countries in the world, but it, at that time, Myanmar was not one of them. And so, you yeah. know, that's why it's so important to be able to to correlate and bring those those international models into the, the the particular reality, the peculiar reality that you find in Myanmar, and understand what's manifesting, so you can so your either your policies or your studies or your engagement or whatever it is. Um, in my case, it was training, it was education, uh, are fitting into understanding what the context actually is, and not what the models or the academics or the policies are telling you it should be. Yeah, that's brilliant, and I love that you brought up. Uh, Nargis and, and that sort of context, because um, this is kind of, I also worked the recovery in Nargis. I had a active tourist visa. I was living in Bangkok at the time. I had left you know, Myanmar in 2005, but I still went back to visit uh, friends and I was had a plan to go back to visit friends and I, they weren't letting real humanitarians in at the time. And so I called up my old boss at UNDP and I said, could you use me? And he basically said, well, you're better than nothing. So I hopped mm-hmm. on a plane and I spent the next month in, in Yangon working on early recovery programs for, for UNDP and was um, and started to notice exactly this uh, much uh, discussed and observed point, which is that, you know, the civil society kind of uh, came into its own in these moments of, of mm-hmm. crisis. And one of the sort of mild amendments that I, I, I make there is that I think um, civil society was kind of always there. We just weren't really able to see it. And mm-hmm. so when there was a crisis like this, and this actually goes back to some of the themes we talked about at the very start of, of the podcast, is that, you know, if you are training your eyes on the ground, you can actually see things that are probably there the whole time. And so what is really interesting about these civil society groups is the way that they were able to 
to kind of shapeshift and go from being like a group that focused yeah. on funeral services or, you know, we're, we, we're a group that gets together uh, to make music and mm-hmm. suddenly uh, a, a crisis hits and we're like, well, we already have the, the sort of, to use a, a term I don't love, the social capital, you know, we have the trust network, we ha- are able to work together. And so we can do some things that other people can't. Um, why don't we, you know, direct that to uh, different ends? And I think what's really um, fascinating about the the civil society angle is how how much of the things that I observed and um, that were explicitly political had kind of emerged from the sort of the yeah. the training that had come through working in non politicized contexts. So whether the sort mm-hmm. of lo- local organization that I track track in the book called CDI kind of like slowly incorporates um, young people into their their projects and trains them on how to act in public to the sort of Jane's Adipe way, which I was talking about earlier, which I had assumed was some esoteric ritual designed by um, a monk in the forest in central Burma. And I'm a little bit, ash- you know, uh, ashamed at my presumptions. And I am in Monua area in Lepidown. Mm-hmm. the site of this major protest against this copper mine. And I'm asking my the activists, you know, can I talk to them, whoever is responsible for that? And they start smiling at me and I immediately mm. know I've stepped in it. I immediately know <laughs> I've done something wrong. Mm. Uh, and they look back at, at uh, our, the guy who had been there the longest, the city slicker from, from Yangon. And uh, he, you know, sheepishly admits that he was the one who came up with this idea mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. he had worked for free funeral service before and so had kind of knowledge of these esoteric rites that other mm-hmm. people um, didn't and hence could improvise within this sort of cosmological uh, paradigm to design um, these these cursing uh, rituals. And so I thought, ah, here, even in these things that seem so different than um, kind of, you know, civil society daily survival. You see the connection between yeah. activism and and uh, and I guess we could say like uh, communities supporting themselves. Of course, the whole you know kind of Protestant Buddhism movement that came out and the mindfulness mm. movement that came to Burma. There was this really awkward dichotomy that was of wanting to both in terms of the the Western teachers that were bringing it, as well as the Burmese teachers that were were wanting to present it as something that was was fit for the modern world, wanting to describe it as this uh, this this um, scientific, rational, logical endeavor. But yep. um, of course, there are all these things popping out of it, and even some of the early Buddhist scholars, you know, they. Um, they they categorized like a real distinction between the more supernatural parts and and then the traditional practice and and the passion of fitting in there as well. But one of the the, the more recent developments of the study of Burmese Buddhism is that this distinction these this the, these walls that these early scholars built that were probably in line with the way the teachers are being represented that. The, the, the supernatural elements are all involved in every part of it. And I think that this is um, I think that this is one of the misunderstandings that comes from outside observers looking at Myanmar is trying to build those walls, those categories, put things in different places and mm-hmm. not realize how it's all running together. And, you know, when you have when there's a discomfort with Buddhism or meditation or the supernatural, you know, the, the supernatural parts of this or that. It's um, it might be tempting to say, well, I'm not so interested in this, and I'm not really looking at this so 
much, but I'm just looking from this angle and at these things. Well, that discomfort is going to come out in a jarring way in really obscuring and preventing an understanding of how this is fitting into common parlance and, and daily life and just uh, integrating in, in, the, in, in many Burmese experiences with, you know, where all these things fit together. You can't take one thing out that you're uncomfortable with or that doesn't make sense and then try to understand the other because you're always going to be playing catch up. And so it's just an insight bringing this background to what you just said. It's, a, it's an insight that I'm just thinking of that, um, you know, that you have you have this incredible interplay of the uh of of where these um this cursing practice is coming from and what this might mean in a supernatural or a buddhist context but then what does it mean you know how how does that being understood and then what does it mean when you're putting into an anti-regime activity or a protest or you know having agency or resistance and where do all these things come together and if there's not that appreciation or comfort with you know, where, where those supernatural beliefs are coming and how they're being understood, then there's also not going to be a solid understanding of where they fit into something very worldly, democratic, um, you know, um, political. And so this is where I'm always hitting at on, on the podcast when I talk is whether you're coming in from an angle of, you know, human rights or politics or ethnic rights or Buddhism and meditation and spiritual endeavors, whatever it is, uh, and, and that's what you care about. You can't just take one piece out of the Myanmar equation and say, you're just going to understand this because you end up with such an incomplete understanding that, you know, nothing's going to make sense. Now there's a lot there that I, I want to pick up on. I mean, one of the things that, you know, on a basic level is even the, the question of like belief, it gets a little bit tricky and it is that sort of binary that I think you're also criticizing, critiquing. Uh, and one of the things uh, like in other words, like you know, do you believe in in ghosts? Do you believe it that the cursing will actually curse them to many hells in their future life? And I think if we pay attention to the way that Myanmar people talk about uh, these things, it gets even more complicated or kind of like um, like breaks down that 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 binary between whether you believe or not. And there's a a part in the book where I'm observing people talk about. There, the chains of Daipue that occurred against men online during the coup. And there's this, um, an online commentator put it, uh, he said, I'm translating, I, I don't believe at all in all of this cursing, this yada yada stuff relating to past lives, but if it will hurt the dictators, I will follow it believingly. Um, and I love that line because it, it speaks mm -hmm. to the fact that, uh, you know, what matters isn't really the belief, but how you act, you know, do you, do you, uh, in this case, he's acting as if um, he he believes it is the same as as believing it because it creates this sort of field of of joint attention around this um, object. In this case, the the cursing of Men Online, whether he can be shamed and everyone's paying attention. And I think people, like when I was observing these these cursing rituals, and I was unfortunately kind of like you know kind of trying to figure out like well do people actually believe this and mm -hmm. it took a while to kind of you know deconstruct my own um par mm -hmm. paradigms of analysis and you know goto the the main interlocutor in this book you know he he put it really well he basically said like look i you know it's this is not about really belief or not it but it does make you feel a certain way and that sort of mm -hmm. return to the way that it actually created sort of structures of feeling as, as i think raymond williams put it um, is this as important in, you know, <laughs> sitting someone down and, and interrogating them about whether they actually believe. And I think that speaks to the sort of efficacy of these, these rituals that, and as a sort of weapon of, of the weak, 
uh, in a situation where it's hard to come right out and, and demand uh, things from from a state that you know it, it tends to ignore you and ha- hasn't given you any uh, rights, so to speak. Um, when you can impact their potential future lives, uh, no mm-hmm. matter how much protective magic they do, there's still that sort of um, concern that uh, the the temporality that they're existing in right now or appear to be existing in right now of sort of secular realm domination mm-hmm. uh, might not be relevant to, to these future lives. And so they're, you know, I heard people kind of imply like, you, you know, what the ritual does is it says you can take the land, you can, you know, you can coo if you want to coo, but you can never eliminate this curse. You know, there's sort of this, this theme of haunting that exists in the in the in the book in which these other trajectories these other potential uh ways of of living um when exist as a sort of uh as ghosts of uh, that haunt the, the the present and this kind of speaks to this other theme in the book uh, it goes back to the title of of refusal in which um, resistance, as I theorize it in the book, tends to kind of focalize these direct contests of, of sovereign power where these two entities, the, you know, the, the activists and the state, square off. Um, but given that those kind of contests can lead to annihilation in a, in a state or in a military that doesn't really care about the terms of engagement where, mm-hmm. you know, it's not pistols at, at dawn. It's, you know, we will absolutely destroy you. And as a result, you have this sort of, you know, mimesis, this mimicking of the way that the, the state operates as both absent and present is also mm-hmm. the way that the activists have to be, um, you know, present they have to pr- then presence the state through those actions to try to get this absent state to, sh- to actually materialize so that mm-hmm. they can make their demands but then they often have to um, you know dematerialize they have to evaporate into yeah. into nothing lest they get they get destroyed yeah and that that then connects back to the early thing we said about how a lot of outside attention is paid to the moments of appearance and of manifestation and that's really ignoring all the stuff between the spaces and under the surface that we're highlighting here but i also want to go to the cursing that is you, you talk a lot just now about how um in trying to measure and understand uh the the belief system of those that are enacting the curses what can you say about the targets of those curses to what extent did you find that we, we know that the, the the military regime has long been just insanely superstitious in terms of its policies and its um, um, and uh, and and how it's conducted itself for to ensure its survival. Uh, to what extent do we find that they uh, that that their fear of the curses is based on a a real fear of what will happen in in the afterlife or in future lives in other realms? And to what degree? Is it more worldly in the sense of, well, if these people believe it, then just by them believing it, it becomes a thing. We have to be strong and stand against it and show our power in resisting and crushing it down. Great question. I think one of the things the book doesn't do is provide a very, actually any real insight into the sort of um, consciousness or, or um reflection on the part of military leaders just because I I didn't have that kind of access and so it's all mediated through the people who I did spend a lot of time with and and was asking you know okay so how do you think that the military is taking this and one of the things that's kind of funny about you know sort of can the subaltern speak or you know can these um, 
rituals that seem like they're they're coming from peasants actually penetrate the elite realms of generals is that we suspect that there is kind of a shared cosmological understanding of the of the way that the the world might work in terms of of future lives and and what will happen to people and the way that we we know this is by looking not interviewing you know men online and asking him what he thinks although that would be great but rather just kind of adducing you know kind of like taking the evidence from how they respond to these rituals and you know in lepidown when they which i think kind of like improvised this repertoire of contention that then spread to the rest of the country and was picked up during the coup, or at least that's kind of what I suggest in, in the book. Um, it's hard to say that for sure. The way that <clears throat> the activists were then, you know, um, connected with by the objects of their cursing, whether they were the local head of the, of the company or whether they were the local commanders who were in charge of some of the more repressive actions against monks suggests that these things were resonating. If you didn't care about them, you could just allow the, the people to do their silly ritual and then, you know, and then continue your, your domination. But the activists were getting back channel um, messages saying, you know, we're, we don't deserve to be cursed like this. And, you know, my, my wife is very concerned. So like blaming it on the wife and, <laughs> uh, and <laughs> this is very shameful for us. And so this, this point of shame is, is interesting too, because, um, it speaks to the fact this is a sort of public political event that, that matters as much as it is a potential like cosmological one that has resonance mm-hmm. on redounds upon your future lives. No, this is very much a, like a public shaming yeah. um, that is particularly sophisticated and effective because of the way that it does that shaming. Uh, so rather than using the idioms of, of the secular, um, and as we know, the, the, the quote unquote secular is always shot through with um, the sort of what we might otherwise categorize as cosmological, like mm-hmm. this, you know, the supposed West is, you know, imbued with its Christian foundations that, and in Myanmar, you have a sort of Buddhist governmentality, one could argue. Um, and I think that, <clears throat> so while the, if, so the, the sort of messages that had just been like, it's bad, you know, we have rights to this land and you shouldn't steal it. Well, the regime could say, well, where are your rights when we, when we steal the land, but mm-hmm. when they use these other um, idioms and they, uh, speak more to to justice, uh, a sort of almost karmic universal justice. It becomes something that's harder to ignore. So, in the sense mm-hmm. that you know the Michangan um, protest that was one of the ones I I didn't study as directly in this book, but um, was the occupation of Mahabadula Park by a group of people who had had their land stolen and out in Thinganjun, if I'm not mistaken, and who lived in this. Um, uh, the can this sort of a protest camp for almost a, over a year, if I'm not mistaken, in 2014 and 15, you know, I, I asked them about their, their chainsaw that they were doing that I think they had learned from the people in Lepidown. And they said, it, it's kind of like a trial. It's like, if we are lying, then we're going to be cursed uh, as mm-hmm. well. So they're, they're kind of like create public, creating a sort of publicly staged ritual that, you know, in a country that had a, you know, the Dea Ubere Somoye, the, the rule of law that we hear so much about that, you know, is intoned by Aung San Suu Kyi so often, mm-hmm. a sort of ritual, I sorry, a sort of, um, 
public trial could actually adjudicate on these things. But because they didn't have any trust in those institutions actually hearing them out, they kind of created their own and put their own skin in the game and said, you know, like, this is, uh, this is not just us wielding the, the spirits against the, the military and the people who stole our land, but, you know, we're subject to it as well. And so it's a sort of uh, a test of, of who's telling the truth and, and who is not. And I thought that was pretty brilliant way of um, creating politics out of uh, in a situation that tends to deny people access to the institutions through which we think politics can be done. And so the, the brilliance of the, of the chainsaw is the way that it, it really does call people into, into action. I sorry, into consideration that, that they might be being cursed. And this is where I, I talk about like, how do you bring a weapon of the week out into the open? How do you, um, if you know that yelling at someone is going to lead to harsh reprisal of the annihilation that I spoke about earlier and where keeping it between you and your buddies uh, in the village, isn't going to do much uh, either. How do you bring this sort of, um, weapon of the week into the open and make sure it's still effective. Well, you do it by kind of tricking people into participating in it, into feeling called by it. And so I call this sort of interpolation from below, interpolation, another perhaps needlessly fancy word that it talks about that moment when you feel called, like when the policeman says, hey, you, and you turn around because mm-hmm. you think that you is you, um, which is a, an idea brought forth by this guy named Althusser, um, is tends to be what we think of as top-down. The policeman is a member of the state, but interpolation can happen from lots of different per places. Otherwise, how would we ever have social change, as, as Judith Butler, I think, really smartly points out. And so in this case, these, these uh, chains of dipways are these like subtle ways of getting people or encouraging people to see the conditions differently. It's like, you know, you think you're proceeding on a a path of righteousness and you can build lots of pagodas with the money that you've stolen from the people. But what if you're, you're being judged karmically in a different way? And we're reminding you to maybe consider that. And so the chapter I have in the curses also shows um, through Burmese political cartoons, a lot of this same sort of paradigm of, of interpolation where elites end up uh, finding themselves called to see themselves differently and maybe to even to be different. And I think that shows one of the many different ways that um, activism and protest has to happen in a place like Myanmar, where the kind of um, standard imaginaries of, of, you know, how protest plays out, though they can exist too. And a lot of the book is, you know, showing activists doing pretty brave and courageous things, um, you know, directly speaking truth to power. But there are also situations where that just doesn't work and different methods are necessary where you have to coax and cajole um, people who might otherwise be your enemies to start to see you as a, as a comrade. You have to coax and cajole people who are a part of this apparatus of the state to let you do your thing. And you have to maybe try to coax and cajole generals to see what they're doing in a new light. Mm, There's a lot there. And it's also making me think of a couple other terms you use, as well as some of my own background and experience in Myanmar. I'll try to see where I can bring all these together. But it's really coming from a place of understanding, understanding two things coexisting. I mean, one is the this lack of trust in state institutions, which I think really cannot be overemphasized enough for those that have grown up yeah. in countries 
where however much we like to complain about them and however much there are genuine flaws in them, if you're if you're in a place with more or less functioning state institutions, it's very hard to imagine what it's like to live in a society without them if, if you haven't done yeah. it. Conceptually, it's, it's very, very difficult. And, uh, and I don't know how many years I had to live in Myanmar before and having frustrations that I would just complain about <laughs> and be bothered with before yeah. I began to realize the institutional nature of, um, of what was happening. And then sometimes guiding other foreigners foreign friends that were there into hearing their frustrations and putting it in the context of their privilege of coming from places with functioning state institutions. But having that as one shade of understanding and another shade of understanding being the, um, uh, for lack of a better word, like kind of the, the traditional Burmese Buddhist background and some of the beliefs and practices that have gone into that and, um, and, and where these come together. And, and just to, to throw out some of the terms you use and then to correlate some of, some of past podcast conversations I've had as well as my own experience, uh, one term you use is the Azani, which is like a sacrificial figure and, and mm-hmm. that there very much is a kind of correct way to sacrifice. And you, you put this in context, uh, interestingly, both of um, uh, in, 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 among communist communities and Buddhist communities, both of whom uh, mm-hmm. have, can demand you know, the right way to sacrifice, the right way to be sacrificial, to lead an austere life. And uh, and this also goes into, you know, we had one podcast guest we had on, uh, Philip Anowit, um, talked at length about the culture of sacrifice that he was seeing in the NUG and how... Um, uh, he was noticed. He was he was commenting that the d- degree of sacrifice that one had, he noted that the degree of sacrifice that one had almost became a currency for the leadership yeah. and appointments they would have going forward. And certainly, you know, in, in my experience of seeing of, of Burmese friends and reading uh, history of different great monks and meditation teachers, that um, and and just Burmese history in general, that there there is this sense that that I've seen repeated time and again that when facing a difficult situation whether societal, community, or individual, that falling back on, you know, a vow of truth of, of something that you can, um, which I actually find in a, in a personal and spiritual sense, I find incredibly inspiring what, what a vow of truth can be. And the way I've seen it play out is that, you know, you, you look at what in your life has been noble that you can claim as absolute truth, the greater nobility you can righteously claim, the more protection you're going to have. But even if it's something, I mean, what I found so inspiring from my time around Burmese Buddhists is that this vow of truth can be the, the things that, you know, we wouldn't even think of, or I wouldn't even think of as wanting to claim as something like, you know, yesterday I did not kill any mosquitoes or this week I have not told a lie or whatever you can cling to, whatever you can say, or I have given, you know, $5 at a donation ceremony and I did this with a pure heart. And if, if these vow of truths can, can be stated and that there's not a a shade of, um, a variance of, of what you're vowing that truth for, this can then be built upon another term, which is the Yang Mie, you know, the land of victory, um, which Mm -hmm. a a land of victory can be anything from um, wanting to uh, do well on a test or get a job promotion to, you know, wanting to win a victory against a conquering enemy. Uh, And so it's this kind of resting back and falling back on this, uh, on, on this sense of sacrifice. Um, sometimes as the conversation with Philip Anowit developed, sometimes recognizing that the sacrifices being made were actually not very effective or, or, um, appropriate mm-hmm. for the goal that yeah. wanted to be achieved. But it was simply a mindset that I, I have to sacrifice. I have to show, I, I have to be a figure of sacrifice and sacrifice the right way and falling back on nobility, taking a vow of truth of, 
you know, what kind of sacrifice or nobility one can 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 righteously cling to and having it and having the land of victory where, where this is then claimed. And and then the final term to, to throw into this cocktail that you bring up is a pia, the, the charisma and attracting mm. the followers, the having which is everything from having a a, a clean and sweet smelling body to, yeah. you know, to, um, uh, to, to just, which, you know, in, in a Burmese Buddhist context to me just brings up so much of karma. I mean, all of this is, is, is understood in karma and conversations I've had that, you know, how, how, uh, charismatic you are and how, um, and everything from body odors to intelligence to, um, you know, what, what doors open to you. I know this is a hodgepodge of things that mm. I'm throwing. I think where I'm I'm trying to go with bringing this all together is um, this uh, is is coming back to this lack of. Uh, institutions that you can trust. So if you can't trust these institutions, what can you trust? You can uh, vow of truth. Mm. The, the most powerful thing about a vow of truth and the way I've seen it enacted is that there's there's kind of nothing greater in this world than a vow of truth in an action which you 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 claim with um, with a with a sense of power and righteousness that you know is true that no one can take away from you, which then gives which then creates kind of a, a hyper morality protection that allows you to be successful in your endeavors going forward, and uh, and so you know this is it's not I, I think it's not the sense that these characteristics have have manifested based on the lack of institutions because I think they pre predate um, yeah. when these institutions came about. But I think that with given a, an absence of good institutions that one can fall back on, which again, just cannot be, uh, cannot be emphasized enough for people that are coming from that background. When you don't have that in any sense to fall back on and you're looking for something else, well, this is the natural thing to draw upon is this, this natural historic background of Burmese Buddhist thinking that, um, that, that has historical precedence, that has spiritual precedence of great monks and the, the stories and the tribulations that they go through. Uh, you know, just to give one example, um, cause I think this fits a lot of, of different modes is that the, the, um, of what, what we're speaking to is the great lay meditation teacher, Sayaji Ubiken, who was the teacher of SN mm -hmm. Goenka, who started this, 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 this whole movement that mm -hmm. there's a story early in Ubiken's life that he had an eye infection and it was so serious that he could for six months, he couldn't even go outside. He was a minute, a government minister under UNU and he couldn't even go outside because the eye infection was so serious. And he, he was also a healer. He practiced healing on himself and on others. And he, um, he ended up eating, I think, something like a, a simple bowl of rice with, uh, with beans and, and lentils uh, that was salted, uh, just like one bowl every day, and um, taking a vow of truth and meditating, of course. And through this, this kind of vow of truth that he made and through his own, probably his you know, his own supernatural abilities of being a meditation master, he was able to cure himself. And when I heard this story and I was working on a book that was what was associated with Paryati, which is the, the, um, uh, a publishing house that's connected to Glenka, they were very concerned about this story because this story, um, really contradicted, uh, the way that meditation was being presented mm. through their organizational teachings, which was that it's not to cure everyday ailments. It's not magical. It's not, you know, this whole other right. thing that it's this, this logical, um, mind body kind of relation. So what, what in the world, you know, our teacher's teacher, uh, you know, seemingly miraculously curing himself, uh, of an eye infection, where in the world does this fit into the paradigm of meditation that we're presenting? And I showed them the original source. And then I talked through the context that this wasn't, you know, this was completely within the context 
context of everything I understood about Burmese monks and kings and rulers and, you know, what, what that context was of facing a hard time and being austere and, you know, taking these vows and the, the place of victory and these other things. And, and you know, with that, they, to their credit, they allowed it to, to remain in and be published with that background. But it just, it highlighted that story to me both highlights the misunderstanding of of outside communities and the way things are presented to them and then integrating integrating with uh, yeah. what's happening in a local context as well as what that local context actually is and how that's actually yeah. manifesting and coming about. So <laughs> no, I, I have I have a lot I have a lot to say about that. I think it's really insightful. Um, maybe maybe three things if I can remember them after I, I start the first one. <laughs> is that the, the first point is just when you're not in an un there's no like unmarked third person, you know, general subject who can present him or herself as like, you know, I have these rights because I'm a citizen of, of Myanmar, right? And I think this, this speaks to the fact that um, the body becomes so important as the thing that can justify the, the incursion into the public sphere. People will, you know, rather than pointing outside of the context to their standing as Myanmar citizens, they'll they'll invert that and point to themselves and sometimes literally point to their the scars on their bodies, not the metaphorical ones, but you know, they'll they'll t- say, you see this here, you know, I had one guy take his teeth out um, at one point to re- reveal a bunch of missing teeth. And, you know, he spoke about how this was given to him in prison. And he actually attributed it to to Dan Shui, I think, um, and you know Gotol, the the main the main interlocutor and protagonist in the book, t- you know was continually talking about these liver ailments that he had and these ongoing health problems that he attributed to his many years in in Dayawadi prison, and so these people could um, point to those bodies, their own bodies, as the thing that that uh, essentially maybe not legitimates because that's kind of like a word I tend to avoid, but at least I helped ground or, or justify um, what they're doing. Uh, and I think that points to all those, um, I guess, more imminent rather than, than transcendent uh, paradigms that you're speaking about when you talk about the, the Azani and the Almye, like, you, you know, you, it has to kind of emerge from, from within. Um, but the Azani is really fascinating too, in that sense, it, because people um, in, as I show in the book, are constantly fighting over what is the actual, uh, a correct Azani path. When is the culture of sacrifice truly sacrificial and for the people? And when is it actually just for your own glory? Uh, mm-hmm. And one of the, you know, even this activist group where one of the main leaders of it kept going to, to prison, um, one of the pers- the members of the group, uh, Durain, uh, who didn't go to a prison as much, but was very, I would almost say contemptuous of the leader who kept going to prison because he felt like this was not um, the appropriate sacrificial path. This was bringing him glory of you know being able mm, to say he was right. someone who kept going to prison uh, rather than doing uh, what you need to do for the community. And so there's this sort of irony in which um, – the thing that seems from the outside is very courageous was actually seen by Duraine as a, a sort of almost cowardly act. The one that absol- like you know, that shirks your responsibility, which is one of these themes that comes up a lot in the book. You know, the activist constantly using this word Dawun of, of, of responsibility or duty, like who will take the responsibility or I will take the responsibility for this. And so, um, the 
Azani path and the true sacrifice becomes um, an object of anxiety and intention and contestation rather than just one that you can easily invoke. And so that complicates the terrain even further and I think makes things much more interesting uh, because it, um, it, it repoliticizes things. Otherwise, people could just be constantly you know, claiming their Azani, uh, constantly claiming that they're the true, true sacrifice, uh, sacrificial, mm-hmm. whatever the word would be. And instead, mm-hmm. um, you know, people were bringing it, activists were bringing it back to the politics saying, well, what is actually helping our cause? You know, is this the time for us to get arrested? Uh, what are the, you know, the pros and cons of, of making this choice right now? Can, is this a time where there are no other options than going back to prison? Um, or is this a bit, is it better to organize in, in the community? Yeah. So we've been talking about some of the characteristics of the state and the way that plays out. And we've been kind of talking around the response to that and the potentialities of responses that have been studied. It's really one of the core features of your book. And so I think let's get into that directly. And the best way to get into that is to differ, is to bring out the differentiation between the terms of resistance and refusal. You note the former are tactics and the latter a strategy. So can you contrast uh, first the definition of these two terms and then contrast what these two terms mean in a real practical context of confronting state power in Myanmar? Sure. So I think, uh, the turn to refusal is, uh, has occurred in, in the literature, and I spent a lot of time reading these people who were bringing up refusal, who were highlighting the fact that you know resistance had kind of become become dead, and I I was wondering why this was, and um, I think what I came up with is a sort of re-theorization of of resistance and refusal a little bit, and in the sense that resistance tends to be this like head-on confrontation with with power where there's a sort of mutual um, co-constitution of those entities that are facing off with each other, the sort of um, resistor and the thing that's being resisted kind of like come together in this, in this contest. But that can be very dangerous for uh, the reasons that um, I've described as with a, a state that doesn't mind annihilating um, you. But I also wanted to highlight that it's also difficult in the context of um, a state that also doesn't always appear there. So not only is this a state that can annihilate you, but sometimes this is a state that isn't there. And one of the things that comes up a lot in the book are these moments when people are trying to mobilize against uh, the state and find that it's just absent. And as a result, they are. It's nothing is perhaps more um, depressing, or maybe, well, there probably are things, but uh, it is quite depressing when you finally get the courage up to act uh, and you hold your your protest and it doesn't signify, right? You send in the, you get together all your data and you send in the pro, the letter to the, to the state that says, you know, our land was stolen, please give it back. And um, you don't even get a response that says, yeah, we don't care. Um, the, mm-hmm. the lack of care is so immense that it <laughs> incomplete that it doesn't even warrant uh, a response. And so a lot of, um, a lot of what I'm, kind of characterizing as refusal are those, the sort of paradigm in which that direct contestation isn't foregrounded, but rather the sort of concern about promoting and organizing uh, the the biopolitical, the, the population groups 
life ends up becoming central, both so that they can ultimately forge um, acts of resistance that will signify, that will get a response, um, and also so that they're just able to um, continue to to see or not, or, or maybe even suddenly see their lives as, as political. Um, and this goes back to that, that earlier point about, um, you know, outside of the rights paradigm, everyone is a, a member of a population group. Uh, and one of the things that I actually found to be interesting about Myanmar is that it takes a heck of a lot of work to even construct yourself as a, as a population group. So we would assume that if you don't fall into a right, liberal rights bearing subject, then you're a part of this, um, you know, you're a, a farmer or you're a student or you're a member of a, um, an ethnic group or, or, or many of these things at the same time. But what I found is that a lot of these um, groups of farmers, for instance, who were writing letters to try to get their land back were failing to kind of constitute themselves as population groups who could be listened to. So there's a sort of realm that falls outside of the population group, the sort of mass of, of humanity here in, in Myanmar that takes a lot of organizing um, to get them to be able to make their, their claims on, in this case, the state and get the state to consider giving redress. So a lot of the time spent during the um, field work period was <laughs> sitting with farmers and going through their documents. Um, this is the activists and getting the chronology straight, rewriting their letters that they would um, send to the officials and making sure the right people were copied and making sure that they wrote them to uh, index or to point to the fact that the activists were looking out for them so they couldn't be so simply ignored. And so all this work that gets put into constituting um, the resisting subject is kind of what I describe as under the paradigm of, of refusal, all this extra stuff that might get missed as we've been talking about throughout the podcast exactly. today, if you only focus on those moments that they seem to pop up out of nowhere. And I think a lot of times, you know, the, the weapons of the week um, paradigm tends to presume that the, there's a public transcript that is spoken out loud and tends to be very obeisant <clears throat> and underneath the surface. Um, and I hope this isn't too patricidal of my mentor and, you know, um, uh, uh, dissertation committee member James C. Scott, who wrote about the the um, public transcript and the hidden transcript, that he describes the hidden transcript as being pretty legible. Everyone kind of understands the conditions of their exploitation. And so when the political opportunity changes, then they're ready to snap into action. And he calls this infrapolitics and talks about how these things, sometimes it is like wildfire when people who have been repressed then, then emerge. And I don't think that's untrue to describe some empirical situations, but in Myanmar, at least, it, it seemed like it took a lot more work to get people to uh, understand their conditions as potentially political and, and actionable. And that, I think, is, is why I use this sort of refusal paradigm, because resistance seemed to presume a little bit too much about the resisting subject and about that as which is being resisted against. This, in this case, we might call it the state, with a, you know, with in air quotes, because the state is always much more complex than 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 just that term. One question of how this dynamic of how are how are you gearing up a population to fight back when they're just barely trying to survive with the level of of poverty and other challenges that they're facing is one, and then another kind of weird contradictory dynamic that you're bringing up is. Uh, is this sense of how do you, uh, a state that ignores you, except when they're punishing you, 
how do you how do you somehow um, you know try to awaken the bear to manifest so that it um, so that that you then can resist or repel it, and it's it's these contradictory things that I think it's it's. Uh, a simplified view that has come on past conflicts in Myanmar and past touchstone points don't really recognize the complexity that that is being dealt with. And on top of that, I'm I'm wondering in your study, I think that we we definitely hold this sense of the military as being this big bad oppressor that rightly so given its uh, its conduct. But where does the transition years fit into this? And I know that the what's often been argued that the the NLD never really had proper power that they they always they um, they they couldn't do everything they wanted. They were also playing games to try to. Uh, make sure what uh, actually happened would not happen. And so that might be, so some of the the things they yeah. were doing or not doing are sometimes attributed to the, the larger games they were trying to, to play. But in looking at how we know as the military is this, uh, the, the, the regime in its present incarnation as, as well as previous decades as the kind of terror and horrible things and atrocities that they did where this is definitely a, an oppressor that um, you have to look at how, at, at where and how you resist and, and where and how you refuse. But then when the NLD comes in, how does that dynamic change in those policies that are that are coming out? And I'll just throw one thing out before I ask the question, because it just came to mind. We had um, uh, one podcast guest we had on uh, earlier was Bobo, who was a member of Generation Wave. And yeah. when I asked him this question, I love his answer. And I, I mean, I'm, I'm always quoting the wisdom of my guests to try to understand <laughs> these points. And I'm, I'm very privileged to have all these conversations. But I remember, I love his answer. His answer was like, activists do what activists do and governments do what governments do. So like, even though the NLD was a, was a better actor in many ways than the previous military, he made clear that like activists continue to do what activists do and governments continue to do what governments do. And that's the way we continue relating. And it wasn't quite so life threatening or, or dire, but like, Hey, that dynamic was, was there in the blood and that it continued for what it was. And so I'm wondering also what you found when you looked at tactics and relationships as the governing body changed? Yeah, <clears throat> a lot there. I mean, I, I can even start by saying um, that what you kind of point to is the fact that the state in air quotes is a tricky kind of entity to refer to in that sense, because I think um, Myanmar people tend to view many different levels of, of the state and activists are able to operate because they understand that too. Mm -hmm. So when they're interacting with a frontline, um, you know, police officer or, or local clerk, um, they don't see that in the same way as they would a general, which of course sounds kind of kind of obvious, but in the sort of Weberian sense of, of the state as this sort of entity that operates to, you know, um, you know homogeneously control space within a delimited territory, um, it, it deserves pointing out that um, when they encounter that state agent, everything is in play. Like the, the person's stateness is, can be very easily displaced. And that actually is what allows these protests to exist in the first place. They will, uh, you know, intimidate and threaten the local, uh, you know, police officer who comes and says, you know, you can't be doing this. They'll say things like, you know, I've gone, I've spent more time in prison than you've been alive. There are things that have been done to me that, you know, 
everything that you can imagine has been done to me. So there's nothing that, that you can do uh, to, to threaten me. And even when I retell those kind of stories, it, you know, the hair bristles on the back of my neck because of the sort of it, the charged atmosphere mm-hmm. that they're able to construct by referencing the, the history of mm-hmm. their own sacrifices to go back mm-hmm. to the earlier point. And as a result, it's not like they immediately turn that local official into um, <laughs> a committed uh, revolutionary, but what they what usually is enacted is is a, a sort of willingness for that official to maybe uh, call his usually a, a his his superiors or to at least um, allow the action to go on for a little a little while before intervening, and that gives the activists the space to create this sort of what I would I call schematically in the book these horizontal actions that or actions with horizontal effects where actions against the state would be vertical ones kind of up to the state using these spatial metaphors that I know as an anthropologist I'm supposed to eschew uh, but I'm relying on it because I think it helps people visualize these horizontal actions kind of help uh, communicate with people who are like oh this is interesting. We don't see this every day. Uh, this is definitely different than um, what I'm used to. Um, maybe I should pay attention and see what the message is. Um, so then the state uh, is always a little bit disaggregated uh, as it's seen through the actions of, of activists and normal people. And as you rightly say, it then changes significantly with the transition. I remember coming back to Yangon in 2016 after the uh, election because I had gone back to to New York um, to to write out my dissertation. I kind of expected um, the activists who I work with to be really excited about this new era that was dawning, and they were more <laughs> depressed than I had ever seen them. You know, they had talked about mm-hmm. calling up the, their contacts at the NLD and, and said, "Okay, like, what do we do? How do we how do we go to work? Organize, reorganize the society that had that is so." Um, out of out of whack, and the transition years were also, I think, um, and I, this is something I haven't mentioned yet, and I really uh, don't want to neglect it, is the way the political economy was changing during these years. Not immediately after 2011, I think it started probably in 1990 after the the SLORC replaced the BSPP, but you had this sort of neoliberalization of of the of the political economy that made daily life a lot more precarious for people. And so you had these, um, you know, this vertiginous feeling in which, you know, wealth was accumulating and there were signs of it in a place like Yangon with glittering shopping malls and, and new cars, but people were having their lands grabbed, lands grabbed, yeah, lands grabbed and not getting their land back and finding it harder to reproduce themselves at a, at a daily level. The, the landless were um, much worse off and migration was becoming even more intensive and exploitative as people found themselves like pushed out to these, um, you know, natural resource extraction zones that used up the land and used up their own bodies before they had to go on to the next ones. And so there was this ambiguity um, and feelings of ambivalence that occurred in the transition, which the activists felt like they had a lot to offer because they had been organizing in these local communities for a long time. And they said, okay, so what do we do to make sure that this transition is just for all? And they received message back, you know, quote, like from, from the lady herself, but you know, who knows if it actually came from her, but basically saying like, you know, you guys played your part, you did your thing. Um, you, 
your role is silent now, you know, and as, as she once famously put it when she was asked why the NLD was running candidates uh, who were, you know, from Yangon in constituencies far, far away, she told the complaining public, you know, your role is to vote for the flag and mm. we will take responsibility for actually governing, which uh-huh. I think speaks to her imperious and uh, authoritarian understanding of what democracy is. It, it's very not, it's very much not a people's democracy, but rather a, an elite technocratic one in which the smart people look out for the people who are who are you know benighted and and not quite smart enough to look out for for themselves and this was anathema to the activists and so after going through a period of time where they they wanted to give the nld a chance uh to make better decisions when it came to engaging the grassroots both at the level of policy but also at the level of you know taking advantage of this really strong muscle that had been built over the years to for people to look after them themselves and the activist work that had been done, they eventually said to kind of go back to Bobo, uh, you know, activists are going to do what they do. And so they proceeded to do all the things they did by trying to hold uh, the NLD to account for the version of itself that they they thought it could be. Now, this did kind of like change the way that they um you know, refused or resisted or whatever term we want to use uh, a little bit, because it it tended to be, uh, you know, they wanted to to give the NLD a chance. And they're, they're, I think they were probably less radical at that period than they certainly are being right now. But at the same time, they were um, you know, able to focus on the things that they, they knew were um, you know, the challenges that weren't being addressed. And so this is land grabs, this is daily life in, in the peri-urban zones, and this is um, you know, industrial actions and, and strikes that occurred in the um, uh, in the factories that in which people were being treated really, really poorly. Um, and like, I think good to go to your broader point about whether the transition was cursed from the start because of this diarchic relationship, this sort of split relationship between the military and um, the, the NLD trying to govern and no one really having having trouble. What I actually, one of the things I was most struck by in the coup was how um, this diarchy had actually seemed to kind of meld into uh, a singular kind of elite rule and and a sort of what I called in, a, in an article with with Pio and Lat, who's a historian um, who's based in Yangon now, a sort of consolidation of a certain kind of uh, class consciousness on the part of of sort of bourgeois elites, whether they be of the of the military, the red or the green. And I think what it was most striking about the coup is the way that the military was willing to to undermine um, that relationship. Uh, for other goals that I think are still kind of inscrutable and could boil down to, you know, if activists are going to activists and governments are going to govern, maybe military men are going to military. Um, and there, there's a sort of libidinal desire to, um, for the contest and for the, and for war that can't be underestimated. And I think, um, of course, complicates, uh, uh, rational or sort of kind of classically rational um, analyses of why the, the coup occurred. Mm, right. So from here, I'd like to go to a point that you brought up in the very start of the conversation. We didn't go there right away, partly because there were other directions and partly because I thought it was <clears throat> rich to explore some of these things first and have the context for then going into what is such a, a rich and important topic. And that is how so much of your book is looking at 
linguistic differences and how they're playing a role in cultural conceptions of political and civil understandings. And perhaps there's no more important word to begin with than the English word rights. And you did go into this at the beginning. You you broke this down and talked about the different translations and where responsibility comes and the the the, um, the kind of vagueness and nuance of uh, of of what things could mean. Um, but I think it's important to revisit this and spend and invest a bit more time given the context that we've now covered leading up to this. If you can remind us and go into some detail of the various ways that the English word rights can be relayed in Burmese according to different contexts, different meanings, different connotations, and those different interpretations that they carry. Sure. Thank you for that opportunity. I think I also will preface this by talking a little bit about my own linguistic acumen or rather lack thereof. Uh, and perhaps this is just on my mind because I was in KL the last couple of days uh, conducting a field work in Burmese, a huge number of Burmese people, Burmese speakers in, in Malaysia, by, by the way, which mm. I hadn't expected until I, until I moved here. And this is for a mm-hmm. second project on, on Rohingya uh, lives in, in the sort of diaspora as they've been forced out of Myanmar. But I've been, I was lamenting the way my own Burmese has, has slipped. <laughs> but I, I also don't want to overstate my linguistic abilities. And I think the way that I was taught inadequate as a Burmese speaker actually, um, kind of felicitously brought up some kind of interesting cross-linguistic insights mm-hmm. because I um, often had people toggling for my benefit between um, Burmese and their understand and their version of English. And I was able to hear some of these weird ways that English words were used that made me think, oh, maybe this word that I think has a stable content is actually being used in quite different ways. So to give an example, one day, um, Goto said to me, oh, tonight, I just checked, tonight we'll have the, you'll have the right to meet with uh, Soong. And I was very confused because Soong, mm. a lovely person, but not a particularly like eminent one whose schedule uh-huh. is very, uh, is one would need a right to actually <laughs> visit him. And mm. so I, I think uh, what I realized in that moment, and then he, Goto and I talked about it for a long time afterwards, is that his brain kind of like was thinking in Burmese, if you will, and had kind of thought about aquinie, this term that can mean rights or opportunities. And so then he translated it into English and it came out as rights, even though in my mind, opportunity would have been more appropriate. And I, I think like those are the kind of, uh, my ears were perked uh, Worked. My ears were, um, you know, kind of attuned to those linguistic uses, and mm. I tried to um, kind of construct a, what we call a corpus of of a sort of uh, language in use that showed all the, not all, but many of the different ways and some of these terms. Um, could be used, and then try to derive some conclusions from them. And so, to go back to to the kind of overarching point, one of the things I found was that the word, uh, the phrase "aquintie," which uses that root "quint," which can mean as much as an entitlement and as little as like a permission or a chance, um, tends to translate into uh, this term that I kind of describe as rights slash opportunities, you know, because it's difficult to really call them one or the other. And depending on who uses them, they will um, they will shift along that maybe spectrum, we could say. So I remember talking to um, Ivan Pun, the son of, of the uh, Serge Pun, who you know, owns much of, of 
Yangon and Langtaya and him telling me, you know, there's no problem with rule of law. There's no problem with rights in, in Myanmar. And I remember thinking in reflection later, well, yeah, from his class position, um, <laughs> he must see things that way. And I think yeah. things can solidify into something that approximates what we might call a right when you're constantly experiencing things as a right. And this is where I use what I call in the book, the semiotic anthropological paradigm, which I think is an un, in a sense, like it sounds more intimidating <laughs> than it needs to. It just means mm -hmm. that um, where we sometimes tend to think of things descriptive, uh, you know, like we describe a situation as, you know, the loss is this or the loss is that, a semiotic paradigm or maybe just an anthropological one, will pay attention to what actually happens and um, and looks at the way that the outcomes of different um, interactions in the world then sediment through um, repeated interactions and experiences into a sort of uh, worldview. So Ivan Pun was uh, experiencing his world as being one with pretty stable expectations of, the, of things that could happen to him. That kind of like almost becomes a right. But when you get something uh, now, but the next time you don't get it, and the third time you don't get it, and the fourth, then to describe something as a right seems to almost fall apart in terms of your experiential understanding of something. And one of the things I put in, as I put it in the book, how many times does a rule have to be broken before it breaks forever? Um, the fourth time, the fifth time, can you continue to be told you have rights but not actually experience them? Can you still mm -hmm. believe in rights as the sort of transcendent par uh, paradigm that operates outside of the of the context of use. And I argue that in Myanmar, you, you don't. And I spend a time in chapter five, I believe, of the book kind of showing this long history of experience with power in, in Myanmar and show how even though terms like acquaintance are used and translated sometimes in important documents, whether they are um, constitutions or, or land laws, as rights in English and vice versa, people will hear that term and reflect upon their, their own lives and say, well, this seems a lot more like opportunity than it does uh, as a right. What are the sort of conditions and, and context that would need to exist for this opportunity to materialize? And if I don't have those contexts and conditions, then perhaps this opportunity is not for me. This opportunity is for someone else, someone who's luckier, someone who has more privileges already, who can enjoy these kinds of things. Um, and so in the book, I look at all these different contexts and and examples, hopefully uh, less interviews and more um, kind of engagements between Burmese people themselves as they talk these things out. And there's like a particularly brutal example late in the book where um, different Myanmar Muslim and Rohingya people are talking about fighting against the 1982 citizenship law. And one of the characters is talking about fighting for, for rights. Um, and another character says, you know, why are you talking? We're the most exploited and marginalized minority in the country. We can't go out here and demand things like rights. We are the beggar in the corner. Um, mm -hmm. If a beggar demands rights, they're more likely to get kicked than to get um, mm -hmm. any food. I'm paraphrasing right now. Um, we need to be a little bit more reasonable about what we can expect. And so, gosh, this is like quite affecting for me. Yeah, um, yeah. You can see how it cuts both ways. And what I mean by that is that by evoking rights that you don't yet have, you can perform them into existence. And that's one of the really amazing things about rights claims. And I think one of the reasons why 
um, you know, theorists like Judith Butler and Jacques Rancière highlight the ability of these paradigms to be appropriated by people um, to whom they don't yet belong and used and say, like, look, we, we belong too. We can claim these things the same way that, that, you, that you were able to. Why are we excluded? Um, but at the same time, uh, as this anecdote highlights, there's a risk in claiming things which you don't yet have. There's a, a risk in... Um, in claiming a right and then exposing yourself to the failure of that right uh, that just reinforces the position that you um, perhaps um, you know haven't performed your way out of yet and it also risks the reactionary violence as you know people are seen as claiming rights they don't have and this was something that came up again and again in my time asking about the and looking at discourse on the Rohingya conflict. And of course, there's a huge amount of just plain old fashioned racism on the part of mm -hmm. um, Myanmar people towards Muslim individuals and Rohingya in particular. But it was a, very interesting how often it was couched in the terms of taking a quintier that they didn't deserve. Um, so rather than mm -hmm. um, seeing this as a conflict in which these are people who are being slaughtered or these are people who are having citizenship rights denied, and it seems very basic to give them these things. Uh, many times I saw Myanmar people describe um, the Rohingya as essentially skipping the queue, jumping in line, as a right. famous Mau Fountain cartoon had it, in which there mm -hmm. were all these other problems in the country and the Rohingya were uh, kind of dem uh, sorry, um, focalizing their own and risking the sort of uh, upending the, the transition as a, as a result. And I was lucky enough to work with people who were aggressively anti-racist and worked mm. um, with Muslim communities in, in Mandalay and Yangon, um, you know, in these sort of ad hoc that then became more institutionalized protection schemes that emerged when rumors would circulate and they would go out onto the streets and say, hey, everyone, this think about who benefits from this kind of violence and think about your your neighbors, uh, your Muslim neighbors. Do you think they actually did this or is this the, the black hand behind the, the scenes operating? But even they had a sort of um, contempt or at least a sort of suspicion about Rohingya because they said, well, where are the Rohingya in the streets? Where are they working with us? Where are they working for the broader people? They're only working for themselves. Mm -hmm. And of course, that was a huge blind spot because the, the Rohingya were excluded from, from yeah. participating and then right. being blamed for their own exclusion, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, but it does kind of speak to the fact that alternative idioms than, than rights can be used, but only if uh, you're able, you're given the opportunity to use them. And the Rohingya were stuck in this really tough situation in which they were so far outside of, of sort of seen as so far outside of um, Burmese kind of cultural life and experience, they weren't really able to develop those bonds of, of solidarity. And there's so many reasons for that that hopefully I'll, I'll get into in another book. Um, and so to loop back to make one final point about the linguistic stuff that I think bears a, a little bit of emphasis is that um, there have been many critiques of rights uh, that have existed um, <laughs> in, in critical literature. And I um, when I describe this book as a critique of rights, I can almost feel like my interlocutors rolling their eyes like, oh, we need another one of those. Mm. Um, but what I think two things that I, I tried to sh uh, really focus on here that I think makes this a little bit more interesting than a classic like this isn't the appropriate paradigm for um, a postcolonial population. And the first is the sort of linguistic analysis in which I 
was by attending closely to how people talked about things like Aquinae and how the sort of grammar and syntax that they used, I was able to compare that with the grammar and the syntax of um, the way that people maybe, you know, said advisedly the West talk about rights. And one of the things I, I found quite striking is how often people in the West will describe th their rights as possessions and not mm -hmm. just as possessions, but as inalienable possessions. So possessions mm -hmm. that they have, even when their rights are, are being denied to them and think, right. think no further than the Beastie Boys talking about you have to fight for your right to party, <laughs> <Right. laughs> which I think I slipped into a footnote in the book. Um, and this is, uh, this is something that's been identified in the literature. It's called the possession paradox. How can you possess something that you don't have? But I don't think people take the weirdness of this very seriously enough. And I think what the comparative method can do um, is thrown into relief how something we take for granted, fighting for your rights that you don't have at this moment, is so strange uh, when you look at Burmese um, grammar and syntax, where they don't talk about rights that way. Rights are much more alienable possessions. They're not like arms and mothers that when you lose them, you still talk about them as if they are yours. Um, mm -hmm. So if my mother dies, she's still my mother. She, my mm -hmm. mother is doing very well, quite wonderful person. Uh, mm -hmm. My my arm is mine, even after mm -hmm. it gets severed in a car accident, because it's so important to my very being as a, uh -huh. as a, as a person. Now, uh, my rights are so important to me as a political person in, in America that I would describe you know, my rights being denied. Now, Burmese people, and of course, there's exceptions, and, and so this is not unequivocal. Um, but I, I find alternative ways of describing rights or acquaintance in, in Burmese. Rights can be uh, stolen. There are, um, they can be carried off. They, you can get more rights than someone else rather than everyone having um, an you know, equal number of, of rights, an equal amount of rights, and just having their access to those rights denied. Um, and as a result, the, I think because Burmese people also don't talk about them as inalienable, as connected to their person, um, they also don't focalize them as much. And so this is a, another kind of intervention, which is to remind people that describing the political world as organized through this particular political technology of rights is not necessarily how people um, use them. And I think we can gain a lot by looking at um, alternative ways that, that they use these, these phrases. Mm, yeah, so there's a lot there and things I was going to pick up on. Uh, certainly that story with the Muslims and um, when that you quote where they seem to have a choice between when they're looking at <clears throat> how they can how they can gain more protection or integrate more into society that they they have this choice between either demanding rights or drawing pity and that this dynamic and uh, and looking at how they should proceed that it, it seems that um, trying to claim their rights or, or, or voice out their rights is more threatening than, um, than trying to draw pity so that they're not harmed. And, but then you go into describing some of the circumstances around that, you know, the right to claim, you have a right to claim and not a right to have um, yeah. that this sense of, of cutting in line, that there's, there's a, uh, there's a cartoon that, uh, that you, you feature in the book about different uh, groups that are that are cutting in line to get what's theirs from the state, uh, from those that maybe have more of a uh, of they feel they have more of a right to those services. But you mm -hmm. know the phrase that really stood out to me in the book and that you just talked about now as well is that you talk about how rights are not considered inalienable, inalienable in in Myanmar, and 
that really struck me. It struck me. I'm having almost like a mental block. Like when I read it and when you were talking now, it's like no matter how many times I hear this point, I can't quite, there's something in my mind that's not grasping it. And I think the reason why is that I'm, I'm so used to the collocation of, in English, of inalienable rights. That's just something we always say together, inalienable rights, that if mm. you, you bring up the thought experiment that rights might be alienable, I don't even know what alienable means because, you know, I'm so used to, to this understanding of inalienable rights. It's almost like if someone were to ask me what's the the opposite of disheveled, you know, like, I don't know, <laughs> disheveled is this, you know, it's not sheveled, like, I, I don't know. So like, you know, I, I never even really knew alienable was a word because it just, it was like inalienable rights. That's the way I think about it. And so it's, you know, it's just, and, and we talk about coming from stable societies and trying to understand different um, uh, different functions and ways that, that states operate away from our own. And, and certainly, you know, the, the lack of a trust in state institutions is something that I never could have understood um, conceptually and, um, and even not being as impacted as a member of that society in all the years it took me to really understand what the, the product and consequence was of, of state institutions that weren't functioning the way that I had always assumed they basically should. Um, same thing with this, you know, it's, it's, it's conceptually very hard for me to understand, uh, how, how a right can not be inalienable. This is just something I'm, I'm growing up thinking. And, but one of the things that, one of the frameworks that you present, which is is not new to your book and has been referenced in, in terms of Myanmar and is such an insightful and yet tragic understanding to come to, is this um, this conception that rights in Myanmar can be seen as finite. And, and I think that's something mm -hmm. that we can grasp conceptually, even if we don't uh, haven't lived through it. I mean, that's very different from the sense yeah. that there is, there's only so much to go around. There's only so much of this commodity. That's a very new thought. It's a thought I understand, unlike inalienable rights, which I still, or, or alienable rights, which I still don't really understand. I don't, I can't really wrap my mind around how that actually feels and how that looks. I can understand as tragically as it is that there's this sense that there are, um, that rather than rights being this this natural phenomenon that exists that we all should have access to and should honor and should ensure that uh, the people unlike us uh, have the same uh, privileges and access and rights that we do, taking that understanding and changing it instead to there's there's a finite number of 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 uh, of how one can be safe and protected from the state and have rights and privileges within that state that there's there's only so much to go around it's not very much and it needs to be claimed aggressively and with shrewdness mm. and with different strategies and you know kind of um, kind of these clever different approaches that can that can swipe in and take something before the other person does and okay this might not be the best way but this is the system we're all playing so you don't play you lose um, but uh, yeah. but there's this 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 finite group there and that um, you know that 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 someone else is going to get it if you don't. And, uh, and, and that, and so that's where the cutting in line analogy comes that if you're waiting in line for this finite resource, which happens to be rights and, you know, by whatever feature international media attention or, um, or, or, or some, some highlight on some minority group that they're going to swoop in and take something which you have been waiting patiently for. And this is just, I mean, this is such a foreign, 
um, way of understanding for, for me and maybe for some listening that there, there is this sense that there is a finite number of rights to go around. And because it's finite, you'd better get what's yours and you'd better make sure that your family, your community, your group gets what's yours before others. And, you know, this is, um, it, it, as important as it is to understand this, I guess the question comes, what do you, what do you do with this? Can you, can you hope yeah. to change it or how do you work within it? Or, or, or you know, maybe you don't come, um, with a predominant view of one's view of rights being, you know, being something you're trying to convert to, but I don't know, is it something you try to convert people to? If it's a, if it's, if you see it as, as a greater good in the world, I don't know how you, you know, I think first is just understanding the, the truth that it is subjectively, it is seen as a finite thing and not uh, denying that or battling against that. But then once you see that for what it is, where, where do you go from there? You know, how do you, cause um, if it's a zero sum game, it's never going to end up good. So, you know, and, and if activists are also bringing this understanding, you know, wh where do you, where do you go in trying to create a more equitable society? It's, it's hard to wrap your mind around. Yeah. I mean, uh, you've kind of outlined like the sort of what is at stake in this. And I think that the finite rights that you describe, <clears throat> I think can sometimes be well conveyed through uh, an, a concept that comes from economics. Oddly enough, economics can be helpful sometimes. Uh, and that's the idea of a, a public good. And a public good uh, described technically is something that's non-rival, right? So like my use of it doesn't impede your use of it and non-excludable, like that extra person uh, accessing it doesn't, um, doesn't matter. And it's very difficult to exclude someone. So mm -hmm. think about something like national defense. Um, mm -hmm. The extra person who is defended by the military uh, who's keeping the bad guys out, if we can accept that <laughs> thought experiment, um, doesn't really affect the ability to keep the bad guys out. And no one can be excluded from it. I, you know, I, I can't decide to have the you know, gun not shoot this person. Uh, or like air. Air is a nice public good, right? Everyone can mm -hmm. use it. No one can be excluded from it. And the extra person using it doesn't affect it. And so we kind of imagine rights in that sense is that everyone enters the set of citizens who um, enjoy the rights that are theirs as you know part of being citizens. And then the extra person who enters into the system doesn't affect anyone else's and no one can be excluded from it. Now, we kind of know that that hasn't been the history. And as you describe, all historically marginalized populations have been increasingly incorporated into this paradigm, at least at the level of de jure or, or maybe a, a symbolic recognition as being folks who can be brought into the fold. And the, the question is, what do we gain by perceiving a system that operates otherwise in terms of finite resources and finite rights where people see the extra person entering the system as threatening uh, the ability for me to realize it um, and wants to devise ways to exclude uh, an extra person from actually using these things. Now, um, I'll start by saying that I, I wonder how different uh, that alternative dystopian system actually is to, you know, you've used the phrase stable societies that in the, in the West. And I think like one of the things that makes the, the, one of the objectives of the book is to try to show this thing that seems quite different than our conventional wisdom at this situation adhering in Myanmar, and then use that to throw, to make strange um, the system that the conventional wisdom itself back in those supposedly mm. stable societies. And I wonder mm -hmm. how stable they are. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a sort of disjuncture between the, um, 
the rhetoric and the discourse and the symbolic realm and the de jure realm, all these things that describe the way things are supposed to be, and then how mm-hmm. things play out on, on the ground. And so I wonder, um, is Myanmar, are Myanmar in the United States, for instance, more alike than they would seem? Are right. rights more like opportunities in America than we would want to um, acknowledge? And so, and this goes back to the political economy point as well. So as you have, um, you know, more and more people being um, incorporated at the level of like the symbolic level or the de jure level, yes, more rights for, for historically marginalized groups. You, that's a sort of incorporative aspect um, the same time this machine is, uh, as it's incorporating more and more people, it's also spewing others out. It's ejecting others from the realm of those who can actually realize those those rights. And I, I argue in the conclusion that this kind of generates a particularly weird kind of, of ennui or, or frustration in which we have been um, kind of habituated into using this particular way of describing our relationships with with power, you know, through this technology of rights. And as you describe it, it's hard to think outside of the paradigm of inalienable rights. But then if we look at um, the way that our our lives sometimes play out and we can, you know, compare those lives with people who have more class or racial privilege or gender privilege or sexual privilege than, than the rest, then we can ask, am I realizing these in entitlements and am I accessing these resources because of rights or because, you know, as an unmarked citizen, the same way someone else is, or are these me- merely special club goods <laughs> to go back to the public good speak, you know, special things that I get to access because I'm, a member of this special club within the club, you know, the, I'm a, a, in my case, a cis white man of a high class status. When I am able to walk into a public building or am I, and I'm able to get the state to do the things it's supposed to do when I encounter it at uh, the, the department of motor vehicles or the, you know, the customs uh, department, when I come back in the country, am I accessing those things because I'm, um, just a citizen, uh, just like any other one, or am I benefiting from privilege? And I think it's an interesting mix uh, of those things. And so then the question becomes, um, what do we gain or lose by holding on to a rights paradigm in a context where it seems like um, perhaps not, you know, we have to completely throw it out the window, but it, it seems like the rights themselves are decreasingly doing some of the work. And I think it cuts both ways. I think it can be liberating, but it also can be perhaps demobilizing. So when people, and this goes back to the Myanmar fieldwork, when people know that they don't have a right to something, it takes a lot more work to get them to mobilize for it because um, they it's dangerous to fight for something you know you don't have, and it can make things worse for you, as um, illustrated in the anecdote about the Muslim Burmese person who described themselves as the beggar who shouldn't demand rights, mm-hmm. risk getting kicked as a result. So mm-hmm. it can be demobilizing in that sense, but it can also be, um, and it can also be dangerous in the sense that you know outside of a a, parad- a rights paradigm, um, you have these civil society mobilizations that aren't always very pretty, that aren't always ones that we want to endorse um, as being wonderfully outside of the state and hence laudable for that reason, like Mabata and other right-wing uh, Buddhist movements are kind of like civil society movements that are able to flourish outside of the rights paradigm. And mm-hmm. you could 
quite profitably analyze them as being devoted to stripping uh, belonging to other members of the polity and reformulating one along much narrower and more exclusionary lines. So those are certainly the risks. They're, but they're liberating in the sense that, and um, in the sense that it does provide people with uh, a sort of compelling them or encouraging them to think improvisationally and to think about all the different things you can and, and need to do to um, change the the conditions that are before you. Um, because if uh, you know outside of the, the a rights paradigm or or within it rather within a paradigm in which you know. Th- improvisation as possible, um, victories might never be um, forever achieved, but losses aren't forever either. And so I sometimes observe actions in the West um, kind of sometimes resorting to or devolving into people getting mad that they didn't get their rights and then going home and complaining about it. But when you don't ever presuppose you have rights in the first place, you never get caught in that kind of Mm -hmm. uh, downward spiral of demobilization. You know that if you want something, you kind of have to go out and and create it. Mm, So it takes a lot more work, but it also can be hopeful at the same time. I think that there was this, this speaks to this moment that occurred in, in a, in America with, you know, making America great again, this nostalgic moment to go back to a point where, um, people were enjoying privileges that they hadn't earned <laughs> and they uh, were benefiting from the sort of outcomes of, of uh, occupying and, and displacing a native population and benefiting from the uh, you know, uh, vestiges of, of uh, a political economy based on colonialism and slavery. Mm. <laughs> and so as a result, this, this past that people want to go back to um, was was essentially, as you say, coddled by a particular um, set of accidents of, of history. Uh, and the rest of the world um, looks at that with, I think, appropriate levels of, of derision. Yeah, so we're in the middle of this conversation looking at rights, and this is a, a big topic, a thorny topic, and even giving what I thought might be adequate time towards not the very end of the interview. I think it's probably been about... 45 minutes or so, we've just been on this subject of rights, but it's, it, you know, there and how important it is and also the distinctions that have to be made between these different cultural conceptions of rights that we're still getting into that we, we, uh, there's still some ways to go as well as topics outside of this that I've written down in my notes from a book that's just chock full of points that again, recommend listeners to check out rights refused is the name of it to be able to dig into this in depth. But I think what I would suggest is pausing here because, um, we've, we've been going with some great momentum and it's been wonderful. Uh, but uh, once we're past the two-hour mark, I think our minds as well as the minds of our listeners might be <laughs> losing some of that sharpness. And so I propose to put a bookmark where we are now and look at coming back and being able to pick up some of these topics as well as additional topics in a second part to this conversation and continue. Great. I really welcome that. I've, I've loved this conversation and I would appreciate to continue it later. Thank you so much. For whatever reason, even as the conflict in Myanmar continues to worsen, it somehow continues to be shut out of the Western media news cycle. And even when the foreign media does report on the conflict, it's often presented as a reductionist, simplistic caricature that inhibits a more thorough understanding of the situation. 
In contrast, our podcast platform endeavors to portray a much more authentic, detailed, and dynamic reality of the country and its people, one that nurtures deeper understanding and nuanced appreciation. Not only do we ensure that a broad cross-section of ideas and perspectives from Burmese guests regularly appear on our platform, but we also try to bring in foreign experts, scholars, and allies who can share from their experience as well. But we can't continue to produce at this consistency and at the level of quality we aim for without your help. If you would like to join in our mission to support those in Myanmar who are being impacted by the military coup, we welcome your contribution in any form, currency, or transfer method. Your donation will go on to support a wide range of humanitarian and media missions, aiding those local communities who need it most. Donations are directed to such causes as the Civil Disobedience Movement, CDM, Families of Deceased Victims, Internally Displaced Person IDP Camps, Food for Impoverished Communities, military defection campaigns, undercover journalists, refugee camps, monasteries and nunneries, education initiatives, the purchasing of protective equipment and medical supplies, COVID relief, and more. We also make sure that our donation fund supports a diverse range of religious and ethnic groups across the country. We invite you to visit our website to learn more about past projects as well as upcoming needs. You can give a general donation or earmark your contribution to a specific activity or project you would like to support, perhaps even something you heard about in this very episode. All of this humanitarian work is carried out by our nonprofit mission, Better Burma. Any donation you give on our Insight Myanmar website is directed towards this fund. Alternatively, you can also visit the Better Burma website, betterburma.org, and donate directly there. In either case, your donation goes to the same cause and both websites accept credit card. You can also give via PayPal by going to paypal.me slash betterburma. Additionally, we can take donations through Patreon, Venmo, GoFundMe, and Cash App. Simply search Better Burma on each platform and you'll find our account. You can also visit either website for specific links to these respective accounts or email us at info at betterburma.org. That's betterburma, one word, spelled B-E-T-T-E-R-B-U-R-M-A dot org. If you would like to give it another way, please contact us. We also invite you to check out our range of handicrafts that are sourced from vulnerable artisan communities across Myanmar, available at alokacrafts.com. Any purchase will not only support these artisan communities, but also our nonprofit's wider mission. That's Aloka Crafts, spelled A-L-O-K-A-C-R-A-F-T-S, one word, alokacrafts.com. Thank you so much for your kind consideration and support. Oh, ba, yarananda, da, 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 yar